I'm going to pray. God, we love you. We're here to learn. We're here to accept what you have for us, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when your discipline cuts us to the heart. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that we're here for more than an obligation. And so I pray over tonight that this is more than an obligation, that this is for you, of you, filled with you, and led by you. We give you this night. I give you my words. I give you this teaching. Amen. All right. So we're going to talk the title right now, at least. I don't know. One time I changed my title, so now I'm really, like, hesitant to say it on recording. But the title for now is The Ways to Life and Death. It'll be the first two verses. Don't worry. But we're going to talk. Oh, I got to be loud. Okay. But we're going to talk a lot about um, what we usually use the word correction in this group. But the problem is the Bible has like seven words that all kind of mean correction or admonishment or um, bringing about conviction. And so we're going to talk about some of those, but I'm actually not going to do a word study tonight. Be proud. But I think before we get any into any of that, we have to look at the discipline of the Lord, why we need it, what it looks like, before we can ever talk about why we would correct one another towards that discipline. So we're going to read Proverbs 14, 12. Somebody hit it. All right, this was like our collective favorite verse for a long time. I was surprised they didn't, like, people didn't, like, fight over that one, but it's cool. It's cool. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So we used to read this verse a lot. Um, we sh- I'm bringing it back because I think we have to start at this point of humility. This point of just because it seems right doesn't mean it is right. But I also want to read Proverbs 6, 23. Ah, so the way to death is the way that seems right to a man, but the way to life is the reproofs of discipline, presumably set upon the lamp and light, which are the teaching and commandments, right? And so I want to point out two things here real quick. One, reproofs of discipline. The point of reproof, the point of saying, that's not right, that's not okay, this shouldn't be this way, fix it, is to discipline us. And it's really easy... I think we live in a world, um, sometimes like parents don't discipline right, but also in America, like our corrections system does not correct things. It just kind of punishes and creates cycles of condemnation. And so we think of discipline and we don't always think of it the way the Lord disciplines, which is to grow us, to mature us, to bring us into a consistency with what he has for us. And so I want to read Hebrews 12, 11. I want somebody else to read. I gotta stop saying that. For the moment, our discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, so discipline is still painful even when it's the Lord's discipline, though. I think that's important. That's probably gonna come up a lot tonight because the world we live in, but also a lot of times the church we live in, um, will tell us to avoid anything that isn't pleasant. Um, Our small group actually just talked about this, of like, avoid anything that might cause conflict, avoid anything that might make people uncomfortable. We use like, turn the other cheek, but that's not really like what turn the other cheek means. But I wanna talk before we get any further into this, if the reason painful discipline is worthwhile is because it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness and we have to be trained by that discipline, we probably need to know what righteousness is. Because it's really easy to think it yields a peaceful fruit of doing the right thing. And that's not what righteousness is. So we're going to hit, I think, like four sets of verses. We're going to hit them really quick, though. For most of us, this is old news, and I know that. But I'm also not just going to skip over it and pretend you should just take me at my word. So let's hit Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
Okay, real quick, couple things. Righteous, justified. Righteousness, justification. Same word in the Greek. You'll see them in passages as we go. Same word, same purpose. The meaning is in right standing with God. In the standing, we should be with God. That's in contrast to the condemnation that came when Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the world, right? Christ died so we could be in right standing. We didn't die so we could be in right standing. Christ died. We didn't work our way there. Christ did. Which is Galatians 2, 21. Ouch. Trying to earn righteousness through the law nullifies the grace of God. Philippians 3, 9. We're just going to read 9. It's like the second half of a sentence. Uh, Philippians 3, 8 is one of my favorite verses right now, but it's the, I consider all things, I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Okay, so righteousness, we already heard from Galatians, like, that doesn't come from the law. So what does it come from? It comes from Christ, but it also comes from faith in Christ, right? So we, it's easy at this point to then be like, okay, so why do I have to be, like, trained by discipline to get to righteousness? Can't I just believe? Like, can't I just have faith and we, we call it good? James 2, 19 through 22. stuck the unfruitful in there so I wouldn't forget. Sorry, Colin. <laughs> so that word in Greek for useless is unfruitful. So if the fruit of discipline is righteousness and righteousness comes from faith and our faith is not fruitful to produce righteousness when we don't work. Not when we work for the law, not when we work for like following the rules, I also just want to throw it out there. If the law that God created that is good and holy does not bring us righteousness, nothing we create to follow the rules is going to be good and holy enough to bring us righteousness. Right? I'm not, that's not like an excuse to go like cause havoc and like burn down buildings or anything like that. Nobody's saying like, I, I mean, if your faith leads you there, like, I guess we can talk, but big, big doubt there. But faith is made active and completed by works. I know we've talked about this, but I'm not really going to like go into the rest of the teaching without putting this foundation there. Because back in Hebrews 12:11, the whole point of being disciplined by the Lord is for our righteousness to bear, for our faith to bear fruit in righteousness, so that we can be trained up. Let's hit Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, because why, why? God disciplines us because he loves us. He wants us to grow. He wants us not to be condemned, but to have right standing with him, to have righteousness, to have redemption. So I guess I want to ask, kind of like pause, when we think about the things that hurt in faith, do we uh, understand them as a part of the love of God? That's a hard thing to work through if the, especially the discipline of a parent has never been really an act that's been purely out of love or clearly out of love, even if it was out of love. <laughs> but I don't want to keep moving. Let's hit John 13, 34 through 35. All right, so if God loves by disciplining us, and we are to love like God loves, 
and that's how we'll be known as his disciples, we might have to help in that discipline of one another. Now, we cannot replace God. Uh, I can't just, like, admonish you until you fix it. Like, you still have to go to the Lord for his discipline. Uh, wouldn't it be so great if that weren't the case, Rip? Um, but specifically in this, this is Christ. Like, Christ is speaking. So I want to look at an example of how Christ loves in discipline, how he loves in a rebuke. Uh, we'll look a little bit at the Pharisees later. I know a lot of times we talk about correction. We talk about Jesus correcting the Pharisees. That's really important. Jesus is, like, defending the name and the glory of the Father most of those times. But I want to look at Jesus <laughs> rebuking a disciple. I would, like, personally say this is probably, like, the harshest. Like, I know he, like, puts whips together, but, like, the harshest words that come out of Jesus' mouth to me. Uh, so Mark 8, 31 through 33. Okay, right before this, literally like the, the verses before this, um, Christ says, who do you believe I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Christ says, you received this not from flesh and blood, but from God. And then like three verses later, he calls him Satan. Whoops. Uh, in the Matthew version, this is also where he says he will build his rock on like... Peter makes this confession, and he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's a scholarly argument about whether he actually meant Peter or meant the confession Peter made because the words for rock are different. But regardless, the foundation of the church is built on that moment. It's built on, I am the Messiah, and you've received I'm the Messiah from the Father. And then two seconds later, I tell you what has to happen to the Messiah, and you turn around and rebuke me. Like Peter got, has his mind set on the things of man and the ways that seem right to a man lead to death. And so <laughs> when Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan, I, something I, just, I appreciate in this is he doesn't just say like, no. Sit down, shut up, you're being rude. Or you're uh, being stupid. Uh, Peter was kind of known for not being very well educated. He says, this is about God. And in this, he gives him, like, also a way to repent, a way to change his heart and to change his mind. Uh, Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. And so I really just want to, like, touch on, first of all, that this is Old Testament Proverbs scripture, like, just, like, general wisdom, is that if your genuine friend, like, actually is your friend, is willing to hurt you by rebuke, you should probably be able to trust it. It is probably a faithful decision. We don't do that blindly. We should have faith of our own to check each other with. But I want to hit Romans 8, 5 through 8, because the purpose of this rebuke, I think, should be at the heart of the purpose of all of our rebuke. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Well, we're back on life and death. Because the mindset on the flesh, the mindset on the ways of man, the way that seems right to a man in his own mind without the spirit is death. The ways that seem <laughs> the ways that seem right to the spirit was what I was going to say, but that's just a jumbling scripture. Sorry. But the things of God, the mind set on the spirit that is disciplined by the Lord, that's where we get life. That's why Jesus thought this was important. 
I'm going to speak up. Um, we don't really see Jesus let things slide very often, maybe not ever, that I know of. And it's because I think about this a lot. Um, when Molly first came to faith, she asked, like, how did things get so off in, like, the modern American and maybe global church? Like, why do I, like, the more I read my Bible, the more I read things, and I'm like, wait, I've never seen anybody exemplify this. And it's, you know, when you're off a tiny bit, you're off, like, one inch in this direction, it doesn't seem like much, and we let things slide. But when you're a couple thousand years down the road, going at an angle, you're going to be a long way away. And I think that's why Jesus doesn't just say, like, Peter, calm down, everything's going to be okay. Because he could have. He could have said, like, don't worry about this, I got it. I'll, I'll stop talking about it. Because it's going to happen whether Peter likes it or not. And he tells him, no, this is not of God. And so with this, with that example of we are, if we are to love like Christ and Christ loves like this, what does that mean? What does scripture tell us? And so I want to start with 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Oh, okay. I'm going to pause. I want to talk about reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Uh, I don't want to separate them too much because, quite frankly, if you don't read the Bible in the Greek, it'll just confuse you because the three Greek words here all get, like, turned into rebuke or repute or exhort. Like, they all just kind of get mixed up together in our understanding of them and our translation. But there is a difference, but I think they're supposed to be used in tandem and that's why you see them together a lot like you see more than one of these words but the word for reprove is to expose or convict uh, when it says expose the works of the darkness it's this word it's to say like hey that's happening I don't even know if you know that's happening but that has to come out and it's to bring conviction and I think we have to stop and we have to say conviction and condemnation are not the same thing we live in a world where they are the same thing because if I convict you guilty of murder, you go to jail, probably forever. Or for like five life sentences, it's forever, <laughs> right? We live, we're gonna talk about this a lot probably tonight, especially at the end, but we live in a kingdom where you are convicted of a trespass against God, of something, a transgression against God, of sin, right? And then, Jesus comes and says, yeah, I already, I already paid the penalty, the debt, whatever is owed from that. And then you get righteousness instead of condemnation. But you don't get to any of those things if you don't have the conviction first. If you don't know that you have to face this so you can have redemption from your repentance so that you can be in righteousness. We're going to look at more scripture on that. But I want to start with that's why we expose things. That's why things have to be convicted of that wasn't okay because otherwise they keep going and then our one inch off ends, off, ends up on the other side of the world 2,000 years later. Rebuke is the one we think of as mean, uh, admonish, chasten, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> um, It's, I think of a lot, actually, this is the, that verse, the get behind me, Satan. I think if Jesus had just said, like, hey, Peter, like, that's not right. Peter may have even shut up, right? Like, he may have stopped arguing, but he was not necessarily going to understand the depth of what he had just done, which was put man and flesh above God. He may not have even really believed what Jesus had to say, he may have just said, okay, I should be quiet. So we do admonish. And then exhort is actually like, I feel like we all think exhort is mean, but exhort is the nice one. 
Um, <laughs> exhort, well, it's also the weird one. So exhort is like encourage, comfort, or beg. So I always think the legion of demons that like get go to the pigs and they drown, beg or exhort Jesus to change his mind about what he's doing or to like direct his course a certain way. And so I think about most of the time we see exhort, we're like, I exhort you to continue in the faith. I exhort you to keep doing what you're doing. I exhort you to like truly believe God has a bigger plan for you. Like we're not usually saying like, wow, how unacceptable of you. We're saying like, please don't let go. But all of these things come with patience and teaching because at a certain point, people will stop enduring sound teaching, healthy teaching. That word sound is the word for healthy. Um, they want to accumulate their own teachers. They want to chase passions and they will stop listening to the truth. First Timothy 2, 3 through 4. It matters that people will turn away from the truth because literally like the ultimate will of God, what he desires is for all to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. That's why we rebuke and we reprove and we exhort. It's why we correct things because otherwise people lose sight of the truth. And we know that all of this goes back to love, but it also goes back to a little bit more. I want to hit Isaiah 48. 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. We correct truth. We correct, we correct to the truth, I should say. We correct unsound doctrine, not just because God wants people to come to the truth, but because he will not give his glory to another. Because we are, that's why we're being refined. And refinement to me is like the ultimate discipline. Like it's the ultimate painful discipline where things are taken out, corrected, like literally burned out of us. Right, and so he does do this because of his love, because I mean, he could just kill us. Like he defers his anger because it's better for him, but he only created mankind in the first place, like for his glory and to love us. Like that's, that's an okay thing. I think we separate them. I think a lot of times this is why people don't come to faith is because they see God as like this prideful being that wants nothing but the whole world to f like glorify him but we just saw the desire of the lord is for all to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth and so i <laughs> there's some quote i think it's by like carl Jung, and it's it's uh paradox is as close to the holy as we can get in this world uh that's a really really bad misquote it's also like a really really long quote it's like a portion of a very long quote but i think <laughs> We want things to be too black and white. And with this, I always come back to, if God is refining us for his sake and for his glory, are we accepting refinement for his sake and for his glory? Do you care about the Lord's glory? Do you care about his name? Do you care about the name that you bear as a Christian? Do you care about what it means to the world? And if you do, are you being refined so that you can bear it better? so that you can be trained up by discipline to have that righteousness, to have that fruit of righteousness that comes from it. I said this a little bit earlier to somebody, but you can do all the other things and just be like a good humanitarian, right? Like you can give people like freedom and life and happiness, life and happiness and all these things and be an atheist. You should love people, and that love is completed by faith. I believe that. I believe that the love from the Spirit is different. It is holy. It is set apart. But are you passionate about God? Are you passionate about His name? Are you okay 
not even okay, but desiring to be disciplined and then to also be reproved, rebuked, and corrected by others, by people who also bear that name. Second Timothy 2, 24-26 Gentleness. <laughs> God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Alright. We're gonna come back to gentleness, but first <laughs> the point of correcting, the point of not quarreling but correcting, right? is so that people can be brought to repentance because repentance is what leads us to redemption to and I mean the whole point of redemption is to be redeemed to our right standing with God. And so this is all so that we can escape the snare of the devil. This is all so we can have redemption and have righteousness and if you correct somebody for any other reason you are not doing it in the love of the Lord. If you are correcting people because you are proud of what you know and that you have the truth, that's, that's not why God would have you do it. God would have you do it because you desire them to have the truth so that they can repent and be redeemed. Well, we got to talk about gentleness because I don't, I don't, I'm pretty sure I literally have said like four times, get behind me, Satan is harsh, right? And in our language, gentleness and harshness are like opposites. Like soap is either gentle or harsh on your hands, right? The gentleness here, which is also the gentleness that is a fruit of the spirit, is more accurately meekness. I would take a guess. I almost said gander. I figured you would all laugh at me, Yassi. This is why I like paused. Um, but I would take a gander to say we don't do that because nobody knows what the word meekness means. It's kind of a weird word, right? Uh, I, I had two English majors and I still had to go like look it up, right? But also, uh, the Google definition is so useless. It's like five synonyms and none of them mean the same thing. <laughs> like, like, okay, gentleness, meekness, submissiveness, like some other one. I'm like, I'm looking for like an explanation. So I got one, dictionary.com, best friend. Um, but meekness, in a positive way, is a humble patience that is not provoked by others. It requires humility, it requires patience, and it requires like not being provoked by others. Like I, I appreciate that, but that humility is also very clearly, and like most of the scripture this word is in, about being humble towards God in particular. Um, we shouldn't necessarily be prideful towards men by any means, but your humility is always in knowing that you are serving a God that wants to redeem the world. You are not above them. You were a broken sinner just like they were. There's scripture over and over and over that says, like, don't forget where you came from. You were also in that place. That, like, God's will is for these people too. A lot of that's pointed at the Jews because they don't want the Gentiles to be saved. But the point of this is not... Hey, don't say anything that might hurt feelings. The point of this is not sugarcoat into the whatever your current society says is polite, whatever the culture you're in says is nice. The point of this is everything you do, you should do humbly, knowing, first of all, that you walk by faith and not by sight. The context of that scripture is that it would be better to walk by sight, just so everybody knows. It's not like stop paying attention to actual evidence but so that you're also not provoked so that you can continue because god's will is for this redemption luke 17 3 4. Don't ignore sin. Don't ignore transgression. Don't ignore when people hurt you and transgress against you, right? 
But the point of pointing those things out, the point of exposing them, rebuking them, exhorting them, whatever you need to do in that moment, whatever the Spirit leads you to do, is for repentance and forgiveness. And it doesn't matter if it's got to happen again and again and again. If God's gonna, if God is willing to bring all men to salvation and forgive all the sins we've ever had, seven times in a day is nothing. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That gentleness, again, I think is about meekness. I think that makes sense when it's followed by keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because if you are not humbly patient as you are correcting somebody, you could very well be dragged right into what they're in. The goal is also always restoration, and bearing with one another is not just about when somebody's sad and crying. It's about when people fall. It's about loving people through what they need to be convicted. So, not so that they can be condemned, but so they can repent and receive redemption and righteousness. I also want to say, like, two verses later, it also says each one must bear their own load. We're here to bear it with you, but you still have to bear your own load. I think I said earlier, like, I wish we could just yell at people (laughs) until they repent. It doesn't work that way. So I want to read from Revelation. Uh, We're going to read, like, before we get to all the visions and all of that, I think, like, studying Revelation is worthwhile. But I think it's difficult to do that in a way that honors that in a teaching. But what I want to look at is Revelation 2, 2 through 5. And this is God through the author of Revelation speaking to the church of Ephesus. I'm going to read this one. So I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. We're going to pause. You get to this point in the scripture, you're like, yeah, go Ephesus. Like, bearing the name right, you're not grown weary, you like don't put up with evil, you don't put up with false apostles. Like, heck, yeah, go Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Are you humble enough that in the midst of doing things right, you're still willing to be disciplined in what's missing, what's lacking, what's not where it was, what's not where it could be? Because we're removed from our lampstand, if we're not. We're removed from the place God has given us to be a light to the world for his kingdom. It's what, that's literally like the symbol of the lampstands. It's like the easiest one in Revelation. (laughs) Unless you repent. The goal is always repentance, not removal. But also, is that, I mean, that is like the threat for Ephesus, right? And I feel like that's not the threat for a lot of us. The thing we are most scared of is not losing our place on the Lord's lampstand as the Lord's light. And it should be. They're bearing his name, bearing up for his name's sake. And they can still lose their place. They can still lose their call. So can we. Complacency is death. Apathy is death. We say both of those things a lot around here. It's because of things like this. It's because you let little things slide and you're one inch off now and you're four miles off in a week. Well, do you want me to shout amen or do you want me to... Oh, <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't... Your hand was behind Israel's head, so I didn't know if you were, like, trying to get my attention. <laughs> <laughs> my poetry snaps. 
<laughs> You're fine. I'm sorry. I just thought you were like, I have something to say. Uh, <laughs> all right. First Corinthians eleven thirty-two. I have said this about a thousand times tonight. God does not want you to be condemned. We do not want you to be condemned. The point of being disciplined by the Lord or reproved, rebuked, and exhorted by his people so that you can be disciplined by the Lord. The reproofs of discipline, that's the way to life, by the way. I don't know where I got that. just kind of popped in my head. I don't know. Therefore, righteousness and not condemnation. I will say it over and over and over again because I think most of the people who have been broken by church bodies church members church goers who weren't they weren't even a part of it have been broken because they've been condemned i think this normally happens because we're trying to earn righteousness through the law so when we talk to people and we try to correct them we're not correcting them in faith and in love we're correcting them to follow the rules we think people should follow Ooh, all right Mary galatians 2 11 through 14 i want to look at somebody Besides Jesus correcting, it's going to be Paul. I just want to clarify that it says Cephas in this passage. That's Peter. It's just the difference between the Greek and the Hebrew. remember maybe like a year and a half two years ago molly and i taught on correction like together and i just remember molly like freaking out and like this still kind of freaks me out like putting this in context peter is the one who had the revelation that jesus is the christ he's the one yes who denied jesus on the cross but is also redeemed and called to lead his sheep he's the one that speaks on pentecost when the holy spirit falls right Peter's a big deal. He walked with Jesus. He was there. Paul killed a bunch of Christians, didn't meet Jesus, and had to literally be, like, blinded to come to faith. Paul says, uh, I think he says it both ways in two different verses. He says, like, I am the least of the saints and the worst of the sinners, right? Paul knows, right? He knows that by man's standard... He does not have the influence to be speaking to Peter. It's actually like the context before this is him talking about how man's influence didn't mean anything when he went to speak with the rest of the apostles and to check himself that he was like preaching the gospel correctly and in line and in unity, right? And he is. And most of that is about following the law or not. Peter comes home and Paul says, no, 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 your mind is on the things of man and not God. I guess we don't know how Peter responded to this. Like, it's not in the scripture, but if Peter were self-condemned and no longer, like, an apostle, it probably would have been mentioned. I, I really hope so at this point, right? Uh, he probably wouldn't have been martyred. I was going to say, say murdered. I knew it wasn't just murder, right? <laughs> so I come back to that humility thing. Are you humble enough to be corrected by the one who doesn't look like they should have the influence to correct you? Uh, if you've never been in the position of correcting somebody older than you, it's a rough thing to do. I assume, for the most part, that Peter responded with grace to this, right? That's not always true but you're not responsible for the entirety of other people's load just for bearing it with them when they'll let you restore them. So in this, not only are you humble enough to be ready and willing to 
rebuke when you are led to by the Spirit for the things that are important to God, like people trying to earn righteousness through the law and putting other people through the law. Because when you go under the law, you can no longer have righteousness because you've given that place of being your master to the law, right? But also, are you ready? Are you ready to be Paul and are you ready to be Peter? Are you ready to call out those who are older than you, those who have a position higher than you, even if that position's like, sometimes that position has nothing to do with the church. Maybe it's, you know, a professor, I don't know. But also, are you willing for some middle schooler to walk in and correct your theology? I'm not saying you necessarily have to expect that the middle schoolers will be able to, but if they walk in and they speak truth and they're in line with the spirit, are you ready? We should also talk about what we do when people don't actually accept that rebuke and exhortation and reproof and all the other words we like to use. Titus 3, 10 through 11. He is self-condemned. Why? Because things have been exposed so that conviction can happen and they have not chosen to repent and accept redemption and righteousness. They're not just like self-condemned because if you do anything wrong, you're immediately condemning yourself. Are you ready to have nothing to do with someone if they stir up division in the church? Because God doesn't call us to false unity with false spirits. God calls us to unity in his spirit and then of the same mind, of the same heart, of the same love. If somebody's dividing that, it's better to be in unity with everyone else. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 12. The whole context, like front, front end, back end of this is like, stop worrying about those outside the church. You have people sleeping with their stepmother in your own church, right? They are not under the same freedom, but also the same standards that you are. But these people claim the name of God, and God will not allow his name to be profaned. He will not give his glory to another. Do not even eat with such a one. Exodus 27, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. <laughs> okay, so in vain means in emptiness, right? Like the word vain is about being empty, about not actually having anything purposeful, really, or filling. But to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay, if, if Colin jumps across the table at me, middle of a teaching, no expectation, and I am Jesus, that is not taking the Lord's name in vain. Drives me nuts. However, I also don't think we should like take the name of the Lord lightly and treat it like it doesn't mean anything to us, and I don't think we should be cursing people whether the Lord's name is there or not, like, I think that goes against the whole point of we're not trying to condemn people, like, to literally say, like, damn you, kind of goes against the entire point of Christ coming to die. But the point of this is to take the name because you're in a covenant with God that is a marriage covenant. Israel is called the wife of God. Now the church is called the bride of God, or the bride of Christ, right? We're in a covenant. We're in a new covenant. We've had a couple teachings on this. I am in a marriage covenant with Luke, and I took his last name. If I go move to the other side of the world and I never talk to Luke again, that's a very vain taking of his name and covenantal marriage, right? I'm not going to do that. It's okay. 
it's also a way, way more vain thing for me to do that and then go sleep with a bunch of other people. Right? Uh, Israel gets yelled at a lot for whoring around with other gods. Because Israel is in a covenant with Yahweh and took his name. That's why we don't eat with those who call themselves brother and then act outside of faith and refuse to be admonished and refuse to be corrected and refuse to be restored and continue trying to cause division in the church. Are you as passionate about the Lord's glory as he is? Do you care? Do you care enough to lose things? I don't have the scripture in there, but... There's a scripture that says those who leave households and lose mothers and lose family and lose friends for my sake will gain life. This is why. It doesn't mean just like cut everybody off and go be a hermit because that sounds more fun. Again, that would be nice. Matthew 15, 7 through 14. We're going to look at Jesus yelling at the Pharisees now. back in this pattern of mindset on the way that seems right to a man set on the flesh instead of God and the spirit the things of God the things of the spirit because they're teaching commandments of men as sound doctrine and teaching about God he also calls them hypocrites just back on that whole like polietal polietal societal politeness He tells them, it's, stop worrying about the law that you're trying to follow. Stop worrying about what comes into your mouth. Stop worrying about what you eat and worry about how you're representing God because what's coming out of your mouth are commandments of men disguised in deceiving people. And then they're offended. Uh, the word for offense comes from the same word for stumbling block. And Jesus is the stumbling block for those whose hearts are hardened. That's... Uh, it's prophecy from the Old Testament. I'm not going to name the prophet because I don't actually know for sure. It's actually also probably in more than one place. <sighs> I thought it would be really like spiritual why we say offended with that word. It's literally just because people get like mad and indignant at whatever causes them to trip. If anybody was curious. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like I just thought that was, I, I don't know. I thought it was dumb. But here's the thing that's kind of exactly what this is like he's tripped them up because they don't follow God they follow the law they don't follow faith they follow the law and they're mad they're indignant and we shouldn't cause one another to stumble there's a handful of scriptures about that too but if what causes you to stumble is Christ if what causes you to stumble is being rebuked and admonished and brought back to what the Lord has for you Let them alone. And so it begs the question, how easily offended are you? If somebody comes and says, I don't, that, that doesn't seem like God. That seems like just something of the flesh. Is your first instinct to hop to offense, to hop to indignation of like, how dare you? I'm not saying you got to take every rebuke. Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, right? And Peter's like, knows he's the Christ too. Like I, at that point, at that exact moment in time, I would have trusted Peter a lot. And he's still set on the flesh like that, right? 
So I'm not saying just take everything, but if you jump to offense, if you jump to stumbling and being mad that you stumbled, instead of stumbling and saying like, oh, maybe I should have been more careful where I was walking, you know? Let's keep going. First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. Oh, we're going to the opposite side, how we should respond. If our response when corrected, when admonished, is not offense, maybe we can respect the people who have loved us enough to love us the way Christ loved us. Maybe we can also do the same for others. Maybe we can admonish the idol. That's not the people not working for the law. <laughs> this is, given the fact that it's in Thessalonians, I can tell you it's probably people who are literally not physically working a job and are just like mooching off the church. There's a lot of like conversation about that in the letters to the, thes the church in Thessalonica. But I also think it's pretty like explicitly about love and labor in the Lord, being over people in the Lord. Why would we admonish those who are idle spiritually? Maybe because works of faith are what complete our faith and make it active. And faith is where we receive the fruits of righteousness. Don't be afraid to admonish one another as long as what you're doing is about the things of God. Hebrews 13, 17. Submission is a big part of accepting admonishment. I think humility is then a big part of submission. But I guess I want to speak for all the leaders here to say that we do it because we're watching over you, not because we think you need to be punished, not because we think you don't deserve to be here, not because we want your lampstand to be taken away. We do it because we're watching over you. We do it because we will have to give an account if we don't. And if we do, to be fair, we have to give an account either way. And I don't want to say, I don't know, that seemed uncomfortable, God. I definitely don't want to say, I, I figured they weren't going to respond very well, so I just didn't do it. Ouch. When we admonish you, it's because we love you, but we will also do it in the spirit of gentleness and of meekness. And so if you want to turn around and say, what like ask you to be in the same spirit if you want to turn around and say I appreciate that you're here and that you listen that you love me and that you want to do this but here's what I see and here's what I believe here's what you're missing we're going to respect that that's the point of the meekness even if we say get behind me Satan we will do so in a spirit of humble patience whether that humble patience is about our own humility or is just about being patient while you get where you need to get. Okay, we're going to read Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. I'm going to read these, actually. This is going to be where we're going to land tonight. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're going to pause, because I think it's easy to just like jump to the rest of it. The word of God, what God has to say, what God has to speak to you, Christ, like was the word, became flesh, right? What God has to speak, what God has to do, it will cut you. 
It will divide you in yourself. It will discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart, including when those things are, I didn't include that verse. Uh, the heart is deceitful above all else and terribly sick, something like that. Yeah. But the heart is deceitful and the Lord will discern what is deceitful in the heart and you will give account to him and you will be exposed before him. There is a reason that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a scary thing. We also believe in a God who defers his anger for his namesake and for his love for us, right? So the rest of the verse is, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have the deceitful verse. Go for it. Kind of the first half. <laughs> I want to talk about both sides of this because I think half this room needs one half more and half this room needs the other half more. If you're not exposed first, you're not really like, I don't know, if your transgressions aren't exposed, how is Jesus supposed to cover them? Like, you've already covered them. <laughs> Not good. You don't want to be the one to do that. You want Jesus to do that, right? And so, I want to end tonight, and I want to encourage you, not encourage you, uh, exhort you, beg you, maybe even, to do this. Um, there's a teaching a long time ago Luke did called, I think it's literally just called Naked. Okay, I was just looking for a nod. It's just called Naked. I did one called Why Get Naked uh, over quarantine time. A lot of it is this. Like, this is the foundation of a lot of it. But the point is when you are naked and exposed before God and everything that you are and all the things you need convicted of, you can have confidence that Christ is not going to let you be condemned. Go to the Lord. Be exposed. Receive mercy and grace because you have confidence in what Christ did for you. He didn't just take Ephesus' lampstand. He says, repent. You're doing all these good things. I see you as an asset for my kingdom. Come back to where I need you to be to be the lampstand you can be. I don't want to break into small groups tonight. I don't think we should, personally, unless you believe like your small group has a big correction that should happen as a small group and not individually. If there's a correction that needs to happen, if there's a correction that's been started but not brought to its fullness, if there's conviction that needs to happen, let it happen tonight. If you've got stuff going on that you need to take to the Lord, do that first, I think. I feel like that's fair. If there's been correction and you didn't take it, probably do so. But you also might want to talk to the person who gave it first and hear it again with an open heart so you can take it to the Lord. Do what you need to do. Um, if you need to pray first, that's probably not a bad idea. So I would ask that if you're gonna like chit chat, we do it in the hall so that people can actually guess what time is it? 
Okay, yeah, so if you're gonna chit chat, do it in the hall so people can have space. Wipe down your tables still, all that. But go to the throne. Talk to each other if you need to. Let us help you come to discipline. <laughs>